This week's episode of Pop Culture Double Date. Um, we're back this week to talk about season eight, episode two of Game of Thrones, um, which is called Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Yes, Night of the Seven Kingdoms. A great use of the word night because it could be read as night, as in nighttime, or night, as in the guy <laughs> or lady in armor. Which is, yes, anyway, <laughs> that's the level of deep um, analysis that you come to this podcast for. <laughs> um, I think that's the podcast, guys. I think we should wrap up. Done, <laughs> done. <laughs> I know. That's the... <laughs> um, okay, so I'm joined tonight by, with, uh, uh, I'm joined tonight with my usual cast of Gerald, Anija, and Maggie. Say hello, everyone. Hi. Hello. Hello, everyone. Um, okay, so we're going to get straight into it, because we're going to try to keep the time down on this podcast. Um, this is going to be a full spoilers podcast, so you've been warned, we're just going to talk about the entirety of the episode. Make sure you watch the episode before you listen to this podcast. Okay, so this episode, we're, we're going to keep with the old format of talking through the episode kind of blow by blow, but we'll try to speed things up. So, this episode basically opens where the last episode um, ends. Jamie has come to Winterfell. The first thing we see is he's on trial because, you know, he's the Kingslayer. Everyone in the North hates him. They put him on trial. Danny kind of wants to execute him. In the end, basically, um, we get to a resolution where they kind of decide that um, Jamie shouldn't be executed, basically because Tyrion speaks up for him and then Sansa kind of agrees with him. So, what did we think of this initial scene with Jamie? Um, obviously, he had to survive. It would have been really weird. I know Gerald mentioned last week that it would be quite funny if he instantly got executed on coming to Winterfell, but I didn't think that was going to happen, and uh, luckily it didn't happen. It makes for better TV. But what did we think? Did we think there was anything interesting that came, came out of this I, scene? I cried just a little bit when Brienne... Stood up. I found this oh. entire episode really emotional, and I, my eyes got all teary when Brienne stood up for Jamie. Um, and I think what really made it really moving is the way Jamie played it, like the way he looked at her when she said that she would vouch for him and that she would fight for him. Was like I don't know. There was there's so much love and respect between the two of them, and you could see it all in Jamie's eyes, and it was really moving. Um, and the, the the other notable thing about this scene was when Bran says um, the things we do for love. And that's yeah. all he had to say. It was so good. He was just taking names, kicking ass this episode. Brand basically has just become a troll, right? He sits back and just snipes at people and then just goes back to staring into the void. It's so good. I love it. Um, Jerry, Mags, what did you think about this scene? Well, I loved how um, it kind of like exposed a bit of the... Um, the relationship and the tensions between Sansa and Daenerys and Rob. I mean, it was almost like, not Rob, what am I saying? John, oh John, 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 <laughs> wrong, wrong Stark. Um, oh, God. <laughs> like, John, I mean, it was almost like an afterthought. It was like this sort of battle of wills between Daenerys and Sansa. Um, and it's all, it was almost like Sansa was a bit irrelevant in that whole discussion. Oh, John, um, and then John, John at the end was kind of like, yeah, cool, whatever. 
And it was almost like he was trying to hide under the desk to avoid the death stares between the woman he loves, Daenerys, and his sister, Sansa, um, and trying to sort of finish that situation off as quickly as possible so he could get the hell out of there. That's what it I think he's also having a hard time because he hasn't told Daenerys yet that, about who he is, so he's just struggling a little bit. Yeah, I, I guess I guess when you're trying to figure out how to tell your aunt that you've been well, the lady you've been sleeping with that she's your aunt, that might be a little bit awkward. Um, yeah, it's it, yeah, it's pretty hard to make eye contact with her, which we saw, which we saw in the scene. The other thing about this scene, of course, is that um, it is yet another big mistake by Tyrion. The full extent of his miscalculation about Cersei's intentions uh, has been revealed, um, and it sets up one of the weirder things about the episode, namely that um, for much of what follows in this episode, people are continually telling Daenerys, and Daenerys is telling is then telling Tyrion just how smart he is when he's just made nothing but screw up after screw up for about two seasons. Um, so that's one of the that's one of the sort of odd notes about about this particular episode. It's not present in this scene yet, but um, it, it definitely emerges later in the episode. Tyrion's telling himself how smart he is with, you know, I made the mistake that a lot of smart people make. I underestimated my enemies. So, yeah. I mean, later on we'll have Jorah will tell Daenerys that she made, she made the right decision in making Tyrion hand of the queen uh, and because, because Tyrion is so smart. And at some point uh, later in the episode as well, uh, Daenerys says that she'll need Tyrion not fighting on the front line, but um, with her yeah, within the wall because she'll need to she'll need to rule the kingdom afterwards and she needs his his, his mind. Again, I, I, at this point, I don't understand why either Jorah or Daenerys would believe that, but, um, you know, the writers obviously had a reason for it, putting those words in the mouths of those characters. Yeah. Mm. Look, I, well, I, was re- I, think- I was reflecting on this, Jerry, and, uh, like, look, we won't go into it deeply, but I do actually feel that some of the, the mistakes that were made in Marine and, um, basically, was it Marine? That was the city. Was it, I always get confused mm-hmm. by, yeah. But some of the mistakes that were made in Marine were Tyrion's fault, but they were also exacerbated by Danny as well. So I, I don't, I, I feel like Tyrion made honest mistakes there. Right? I, like I, I, st- I don't think he was a complete idiot, idiot. Um, but, but yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So okay. So, uh, um, Andrew, did you want want to add anything there? Sorry, I, I cut you off there. Yeah. Look, I don't really want to add anything at this point, but at some point. We need to talk about the fact that everybody has decided to gather the women and the children in the crypt. Yes, so I agree. Oh, is my it, God. It zombie, okay, zombie ac- ac- Let's ac- just talk ac- about it now. Let's talk about it. Do you it. go to a graveyard, right? If the zombies are attacking, do you pick a graveyard as the safest place for everybody to gather? Like, why would you send them down to the crypts? They're, tra- they're trapped there, and there are dead people there. Yes, I... I completely agree. I was shouting at the screen. Like, basically, later in this episode, they have the war council, and they kind of all agree, oh, it's such a good idea to go into the crypts. And then all these people are like, oh, I'll just go hide out in the crypts, like Tyrion and, like... Sam um, and Gilead are going to be there, and Tyrion is going to be there. Yeah, and I'm like, what are you guys doing? This guy, you know, he raises the dead. 
You're putting I, I them where the that. dead is. Like, what is wrong with you people? <laughs> it's it's anyway. Anyway, I guess in this world where in a zombie apocalypse you put your women and children with the dead people, Tyrion is a tactical genius. So I guess that <laughs> makes sense on some level. So, um, okay, yep. So that was. Jamie's trial, um, yeah, I agree with all those points. I thought it was really great that Danny and Sansa kind of had a little bit of a showdown, and I, I loved how Danny basically was, like, basically giving Sansa the evil eye because Sansa was sort of, you know, Sansa basically made the decision to spare Jamie, and Danny had to go along with it. Right, and you could tell yeah. she was fuming about that because she's like, yeah. "I'm the queen. I should be the one making the decision." Right, but anyway, I, I thought that was great. I thought it was like great sort of power dynamics, um, and I agree that John um, basically did not really want to be there. <laughs> um, okay, so the the following se- the scene immediately after this is um, Arya and Gendry. Um, Arya goes goes to visit Gendry in the forge. Um, asks if Gendry has made um, made her his, uh, made made her the weapon she was asking for the weapon that she scrawled on a little piece of paper and expected him to just figure it out basically. I mean, it was just a stick with two pointy ends, so he did figure it out. <laughs> um, and so they have this sort of sort of scene where they kind of talk talk about um, you know where they've been and. Um, Arya basically again shows look I mean at this point I kind of feel a little bit annoyed at Arya how she feels constantly the need to prove that she's like some sort of badass right Um, we kind of know that she's a badass but pretty much a lot of the scenes that she's in she's just basically flaunting it to basically stick it in people's faces right so I, I thought this was a little bit of a scene like that because she's throwing the knives at the because Gendry wouldn't make her the weapon. He was like, yeah, I'll put it at the end of my list because what are you going to do with it? Anyway, you should be down in the crypts with all the other girls. And I think she was Actually, just trying to prove that she could fight. And I don't think this is this is Aya's idea of flirting. Ah, like, you really? She, is, she, has become, she has become such a relentless psychopathic killing machine. Her idea of flirting is to throw uh, dragonglass spear tips at wall uh, with unerring hands. And show Gendry just, just, how, just how good she is. <laughs> That's true. It was implied that he was kind of turned on by the fact that she could throw knives really well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she is is totally a don. (laughs) Look, I... I, Look, this this scene... She was basically basically saying to Gendry, I'm a don, check out my red room. I I don't actually understand that reference, Jez, but I'm sure people will get it. (laughs) Um, Um... Daz, have you not read Fifty Shades of Grey? Okay, this this that, podcast, this podcast <laughs> is called Pop Culture Double Day. Back to the material. Um, Adra, did you want to add anything? No, no, no. Back to the material. <laughs> it was fine. I, I, I think we see these scenes because I, I don't know. I think, that, I think, I don't know that Arya is really going to have that much of a crucial part to play with the actual fighting. And so we see all of her skills outside of the actual fighting context. Um, I think it was about showing Gendry that he needs to take her seriously and just establishing more time between her and Gendry and their time together. The way they flirt has always been kind of paying each other out a little bit and one upping each other a bit. So 
yeah, kind of made sense. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I, get, I agree. I can understand why they inserted this scene, because there is another scene later, which involves Arya and Gendry. Although, I have to say, I do find the shipping of Arya and Gendry a little bit awkward. It, it doesn't quite sit right with me, as in... I, I, I don't know. I, I don't feel like it's as earned as some of the other relationships in this show. Um... But anyway, we can talk about that um, in the big Arya and Gendry scene later in this episode. So, shall we move on? Is there anything else that needs mm-hmm. to be said about this scene? Max? Um, all I wanted to say was, like, for me, this episode generally was about reminiscing remembrances and farewells and character stories and, like, their relationships with one another coming together and, and closing out. And the Gendry Arya thing seems to be in that kind of vein of there must have been um, through sort of fan feedback this desire for Arya and Gendry to get together, mm. and I, I kind of feel like maybe this is one of those relationships where they're trying to please the fans and and close out that that um, I guess maybe that that storyline from the past. So yeah, that's why it felt felt a bit awkward because it hasn't really been organically created throughout the series it's been um and i mean the last time we saw the two of them together aria was really young she was a, a little girl so that's why it also feels a bit awkward yeah to me anyway. yeah but i think something is established between them in the books it's, it doesn't it's not a romance yet but you can kind of see it coming which i guess is where the shippers are but then it also parallels with um what happened in the very first episode of the series where Robert said to Ned, you know, you have a girl, I have a son, let's unite our houses. And it wasn't going to be Sansa and um, Joffrey, but maybe it's going to be Arya and this bastard son. So I don't think it's complete fan service, but I see why it's awkward for us now because in the show, those two didn't get as much time together. And it was a long time ago and so much has changed since then. Yeah. 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 Well, frankly, I, I always thought it was going to be Aya and Hot Pie. I just thought they were. <laughs> yeah, Hot Pie was going to lose a bunch of weight, come back with like a six pack. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Like, oh, hot pie, no. <laughs> exactly. And throw flaming pies at the White Walkers. Yeah. He's the Lord of Light. <laughs> um, yeah, so look, I mean, I think it's worth touching on now before we move in on to the next scene. Like, because generally this episode. Like, it just felt like a bit of a... I mean, this this episode felt like a continuation of last episode in the sense that it was quite slow and was very character-oriented. It was just, like, a whole bunch of um, character reunions and, like, sort of relationships and that sort of thing, right? And I, I genuinely get the feeling that, basically, this is kind of the last of... We're reaching the end of these last slow character movements because I think from next episode onwards, everyone is just going to start dying, right? I, I feel like mm. this is like the last, like the ensemble cast is together. We're going to have all of their interactions, all the fan servicing interactions. We're going to get that out of the way. And pretty much like this is like, in, in well, I mean, it's actually this actually happens in the episode, right? Where they basically much of this episode is them sitting around prepping for the night before this huge fight, where they all think they're going to die, right? And I think that's actually mm-hmm. a reflection of what they're trying to do in this show here, because I I think after next episode, like eighty percent of those the people the characters that we saw in this episode are gone, 
right like there are mm. so many scenes in this episode where you're like well this is this character's last scene thanks very much i enjoyed your character but i'll see you later right like i definitely fe- felt there was a lot of that um yeah um okay so if we move on to the next scene um so we've got a uh, a double jamie scene we basically have the reunion between jamie and bran um in which basically Jamie tries to make peace with Bran, um, and then Bran, um, Jamie asks Bran if he's going to tell anybody about um, him and Cersei and him throwing Bran off um, the tower, and Bran replies very um, chillingly, well, you know, who says anybody's really going to survive after this, right? Which is pretty scary, given that Bran... (laughs) is supposed to be the all-knowing one and he seems to not really know what the outcome of this is going to be. Um, and then we have a scene with Jamie and Tyrion on the wall when they're having a little bit of brotherly banter and it's followed by basically Jamie um, basically coming face-to-face with Brienne after his trial um, and uh, Jamie ba- basically pledging his sword uh, to Brienne, right? Ba- um asking Brienne if he can fight under her in the coming battle. Um, quite enjoyed these scenes. Um, I think along with um, Jamie's trial at the beginning of the episode, it definitely shows Jamie's character growth. It shows why a character as loathsome as Jamie at, in season one has grown to be a character that is actually quite... Um, well, liked is probably too strong a word, but is... Um, so interesting, right? He's such an interesting um, character in this show and such an integral part of this show. And, like, I, I think all these scenes, kind of, these relationships that he's built up with all these various people, his moral ambiguity, all this type of stuff, it's all showcased in all these scenes. So I thought it was great, right? Um, it makes me fear for Jamie's life because <laughs> given the amount of screen time he's had this episode, again, I'm a little bit concerned that this is one of these final hurrah episodes, so potentially we're getting the sort of Jamie, this is your life style moment in this episode, <laughs> which is why we might not see him again next episode, or he might be undead next episode. What do you guys think of this? I mean, Jamie is beloved by many, actually. Um, <laughs> so even though you might think that, oh, how can that be when he's done so many terrible things? He's had, I think, the strongest character development of any of the characters in some ways. In, some, in other ways, maybe not, because he always did have that. He always was um, a good guy at heart. I mean, the whole reason he killed the king was, was you know, for, for valid reasons. But um, So he is loved, and I thought that that scene with him and Brienne was just really awesome i think for anyone shipping jamie and brianne this has been a, such a great episode so one of the things you know she says to him is um he, he, they're just having a conversation about battle it's a perfectly normal conversation she starts to get suspicious and she says what are you doing we have never had a conversation last this long without you insulting me not once she says um and so she's like start, she's kind of confused by the changing dynamic between them and I think that she is sort of feeling the feels for him and um, doesn't really know what to make of that or to trust that or to trust him um, and it's kind of makes her uncomfortable but 
it's definitely happening and it's kind of beautiful when he says to her i look the whole reason i really came here was for you and i want to fight with you because when he was back at the you know during his trial when he was asked that question well if family is so important to you why have you deserted them now and he says this is not about loyalty this is about survival but i think in this scene with brienne you can kind of see that it is still about loyalty but his loyalty is to brienne and he wants to fight with her um that's what i got out of it what did you guys think do you guys sorry uh, sorry, like, um, sorry, Jerry. Before before you go on, um, Anija mentioned this idea of shipping Brienne and Jamie. Um, do you feel like that is a romantic relationship or a platonic relationship? I think it's becoming romantic. I don't know if you watched at the end of the episode. There was inside the episode where we got to see the directors talking a little about a bit about it, and they specifically said she's got the feels for him, and she's she's just she doesn't really know what to do with that because she's suppressed it for so long that it's kind of always been there, but she has suppressed it for so long and not allowed herself to co- contemplate it, and now it's kind of bubbling to the surface. Do you think um, it's romantic yeah. for Jamie though? That's harder to answer. Yeah, so, I think he loves her, but in a romantic way, I don't know. Yeah, so I, I always saw this as, um, for him anyway, from his perspective, that I feel like he loves Cersei romantically, but he loves Brienne because Brienne represents everything, like, the, the, everything that he kind of wants to be, right? This honourable mm. knight, you know, someone who always does the right thing, right? Like, yeah. he's the, she's the Kingsguard that Jamie wanted always sort of strive to be, and him seeing her live that out, kind of like he respects her, she, he wants you know, he wants to be her, like she's his idol, almost in some ways, right? And I see it as that sort of love, um, rather than... But it, yeah, up. I don't think it matters. Maybe because I'm not much of a shipper of them, I don't think it matters that it's not romantic because they do love each other so deeply. Like, he has risked his life for her more than once. He gave his hand, his sword hand for her to protect Mm. her. Um, He's made so many decisions inspired by her. um, And she... I don't like. I'm not sure. So I can't say so much how much he has changed her, but I just think that there's so much love between them. Yeah. 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 yeah, agreed, agreed. Jerry, sorry about that. No, that's all right. I was just uh, commenting that um, it is somewhat odd that the fact that he respects and has a great deal of affection for her should come as a surprise to her at this point. I think the last really long scene between the two of them was when Jamie presented Brienne with Oathkeeper um, one of the two swords made after the melting of Ned Stark's sword. And, you know, it's a Valyrian steel sword. This is no small thing that is being presented to her by a knight of the realm, um, not just a knight of the realm, but the former Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. So um, I would have thought that that was a pretty, a pretty big clue to her um, that he had a great deal of respect for her and a great deal of affection uh, and regard, and that she should be suddenly sort of surprised that he's not negging her seems, I think, um, to make her see, to make her less perceptive, make her seem less perceptive than she would than she should be. Um, and she, because she's she's better than that. she she is. I think I think it may be the case that 
the extent of her own feelings for Jamie um, has been suppressed by her for a very long time, such that she's not fully acquainted with the depth of her own love for Jamie, but um, it should come as no surprise to her, I would have thought, given all that's passed between them, given uh, the presenting of Oathkeeper, that he holds her in very, very high regard. So, um, you know, that was the only odd note, I think, about about their interaction, their interactions in this episode, which were all, I think, very moving. And uh, you don't have to be a shipper um, to find the interaction between the two of them um, really deeply emotional. Yep, agreed, mm. agreed. Mags, do you have anything to add to those scenes, or...? Um, not really. I mean, I... I... I don't really think it's romantic either and I suppose it's just more depth of feeling from, you know, both experiencing and participating in quite traumatic experiences in in past seasons. Um, and, you know, the scene that we'll get to later on um, about, you know, um, him knighting her, the sort of final gift that he can give to her, um, I think is, is a beautiful kind of rounding off to their relationship because who knows, Maybe in the next episode, one of them will be, you know, offing the other who's turned into a White Walker. Who knows? Uh, yeah, so, I, I think that's definitely going to happen next episode. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, you know, there's something quite beautiful about um, the way in which they've both grown and, you know, it, 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 Jamie's come through um, quite a trial of fire to get to where he is now and Brienne's sort of stuck to um, her ideal throughout the entire um, series, so it's actually quite lovely to see him kind of get to the point where he recognizes explicitly into everybody else her value. So, hmm. yeah, I thought that was quite lovely. Yeah. Okay. And in Pod Watch news, this scene also showed how badass Pod is becoming with the sword. Yeah. So hopefully that means Pod will survive. <laughs> but I don't know. But I'm hoping. <laughs> Pod, Pod, Pod is becoming a swordsman in every sense. <laughs> He already was a swordsman. <laughs> the realm's greatest. <laughs> um, okay, so moving on, we have the Jorah and Danny scene that um, Gerald was talking about earlier, where Jorah sits down with J- Danny and vouches for Tyrion um, because Danny is getting sick of Tyrion's mistakes, and I don't know what she was planning to do with him, but <laughs> anyway, Danny was getting pissed off. And we basically have a bunch... Like, so basically this is like the Danny diplomacy scenes, right? Where Jorah is counselling Danny for... Um, to sort of... Well, Tyrion's still worth keeping. He's not that dumb. And then immediately after this scene, we have a scene with Danny approaching Sansa to try to basically give her carrots instead of sticks. Um, which is really weird. I found this to be a super weird scene because... It's the first time we've ever seen Danny basically try to be nice with, <laughs> like, a rival, <laughs> I guess. Um, and basically, it kind of, uh, like, they, Danny is trying to convince Sansa that, you know, she's come here in good faith as well, that she genuinely loves Jon. Sansa turns around and says to Danny, well, you know, men make horrible decisions when they're in love, which is true. And um, basically, um, Sansa outright comes out and asks her, well, what happens after this fight, right? Like, so what happens after this fight? Who's, what are your plans for the North, essentially, which I think is fair. And 
I think that kind of sets Danny off again. It, it makes her very uncomfortable. But luckily, Theon comes in and um, saves the scene. I, I look. This scene is is written in such a way that you don't know if Sansa and Danny have a chat. Um, to basically figure out what happens with the North, whether they've come to some sort of agreement with the North. But basically, the scene immediately after this is that Theon comes to Winterfell. He pledges his service to protect the Starks, essentially. When asked about the ships, um, Danny, uh, sorry, Theon tells him tells Danny that Yara has gone back to the Iron Isles. I think to basically um, secure the Iron Isles for her. Um, but that Theon has come to Winterfell specifically to fight for the Starks. Not for Danny, for the Starks. And he and Sansa have a reunion. What do you guys think about this? Did, you, did this scene, the, the, these scenes kind of reinforce the sort of tyrannical Danny? Like, do we think that she did okay with the diplomacy? What do we think? Of, think? Danny did a good job, and I think she she made a really good, important point to Sansa that Sansa resonated with, which is that we are basically two strong women. We've both 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 been through crap, and we've both triumphed. We've actually got more in common than we have um, that, that that keeps us apart from each other. And I love your brother, and don't forget that even though you're worried that I'm manipulating him, here I am fighting his war. Um, when I've got you know when what I actually wanted was was the Iron Throne. Um, but this question, I think this question that Sansa asks her, which is Sansa's stubbornness um, of not letting this point go, I think it's unfair because John was the king of the north and John bent the knee to Daenerys. So you cannot after that have other people asking her what about the north. John has given the north away to her. And so it's not really Danny's fault that it's annoying that no one is acting as though that is what happened because those are the terms in which she came to help them. Um, but I think Danny did great in, in in resuming her attempt to win Sansa over, and I think she's doing. I think their relationship is getting better, but there's you know there's still going to be some hostility there for a while. Yeah, I, I, Mags, go. Oh no, I was like I was thinking about this again. Like for me, it kind of showed the contrast between Danny, who seems to rule by almost by force since coming back to Westeros. Um, because I guess with the North, they weren't a sort of um, a kingdom of people, a group of people that were captive and needed to be saved. The, the way in which she, you know, um, sort of walked through um, North and, and I can't remember the name. Marine and Yunkai. Marine and yeah, yeah, and so forth. They're a group of people who are well established um, and were operating quite well without her. Um, and the contrast between, say, um, Sansa, who is strong in maintaining those relationships and key alliances, I suppose. So for me, it was almost like, again, you know, a, a contrast in leadership between leadership style between um, Sansa, who's, you know, coming across as quite a good ruler, versus um, Danny, who who very much has this single-mindedness in the way in which she pursues her goal. Um, and could ultimately be her downfall because, I mean, we've got four episodes left. Not all four episodes, presumably, will be about the Night King. So it, it's kind of like, you know, what are some of the things that they've they've planted in this episode that could point towards Danny's unraveling? And for me, part of that is her inability to forge strong relationships um, because she's also 
unwilling to to build them. Well, I, I think look to to her credit, I do feel like she was trying. She was trying this episode. Um, I definitely felt like it was a little bit. Um, it, it felt super odd, right? Because I don't think we've really seen Danny approach anybody in that sort of way. But look, I, I, I agree with Mags to the extent that the fact that they juxtapose that Theon scene at the back end of the talk between Sansa and Danny really like reinforces this idea of, well, what right does Danny have to rule the North apart from you know, the right of lineage or whatever. Like, do you know what I mean? It's not like she's really earned the leadership of the North. While, um, basically, like, the implication, I think, with some of these scenes is that Sansa has spent all this time building these relationships, as Nag said, and as a result has earned a right to the North, almost, right? Like, you have someone like Theon come in and basically pledge himself to her and it's this super awkward scene where basically Danny is asking Theon well where are my ships man and he's he's like no nah, my sister's got them they're back in the Iron Isles and then he makes this huge emotional scene to pledge himself to Sansa and mm. Danny is standing right there it is it mm. is really odd like it, it like I mean it, it definitely mm. for someone like Danny who kind of has a sense of well you know I am the absolute authority I can understand how that would be quite a confronting moment um but yeah also i, I definitely i don't know i i think the showrunner's intentions are to basically present this idea that potentially sansa is has earned the right to rule more than someone like danny who has come in from the outside anyway um jerry do you have any thoughts on this scene yeah i think i, I think i think the most telling moment in this particular scene was when in her first response to the question, what happens after the war gets dead, uh, Daenerys says, I take the Iron Throne. In other words, I ascend to power, but she can't offer a vision of what happens with that power, the purpose to which that power will be exercised. Um, and which is odd, because in the past, she has said things like, I intend to break the wheel. In other words, I intend to end the cycle of retribution, mm. vengeance, and mutiny that sees the Iron Throne pass from dynasty to dynasty. She's now saying she, she can't, she has, she's no longer articulating that sort of vision. She, her, all that she can offer by way of answers to the question, well, what next is I take power. Um, mm. and, and so, you know, that kind of raises the question, what exactly is, at the, at the risk of sounding of, of using the language of modern politics, what exactly is her vision for Westeros? Mm. Should she ascend to the Iron Throne? Um, in, in seasons past, um, the acquisition of power was tied to some cause, such as the liberation of slaves in Essos. Well, the slaves have been liberated uh, in Essos, so that, that, that purpose has been fulfilled. Um, but in Westeros, um, she doesn't seem to have any purpose driving her beyond some sense of uh, aggrievement because some entitlement has been denied her by, by dint of Robert's Rebellion. Mm. So it, it just rather prompts, I think, in my mind, a degree of concern that, you know, the problem with Daenerys is not so much 
the arrogance, not so much the tendency to apply brute force to any governing problem. It's the it's the hollowness of the pursuit of power on her part, hollow because it's completely untethered to a broader sense of what can be done for the good of Westeros. Now, which is not to say that she she is insensitive to that. She wouldn't be fighting um, alongside Jon Snow against the White Walkers if she didn't have some sense of what was right or beneficial for the people of Westeros. But beyond the survival of um, humankind as a race, um, she has very little to offer by way of vision. And I think, you know, Sansa was trying to probe that. Sansa was basically, you know, a, a swing marginal seat voter saying, well, what, what are you looking at me now? And, um, and, and Daenerys had nothing for her. Um, and so, you know, in a sense, whilst, her, whilst, whilst she does not seem as nihilistic as Cersei in her desire for acquiring and retaining power, maybe there's actually not that much that divides her from Cersei in the end. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, um, let's... Good points, but let's move on. Um, so... Next scene, we have the Night's Watch reunion. The boys get reunited. Tormund's there as well. Um, interestingly, in this scene, we finally get to see Ghost after <laughs> quite a long absence, and there's just no interaction between him and John. I was super disappointed in this scene. I loved that they had this Night's nice Watch reunion. I loved um, Ed's interaction with... Um, like uh, Sam and John, but John didn't even pet Ghost. I, I was super. I didn't dis- even <laughs> notice Ghost was there. Ghost was I just sitting. He was like in the corner, photoshopped in, basically, right? And I'm like, John, this is your dog. Why are you not petting your dog? Mm. He's, he's like being with you through thick and thin. What is going on? I hated that Ghost was not more of an integral part of the scene. I hated specifically that John did not pet Ghost. I'm a huge dog person, and if there's a dog there that you love, you would be petting the hell out of that dog. So, why didn't he get pets? Anyway, that was that was what I wanted to say about that scene. That scene was followed by the big war council scene, where um, basically they talk about the strategy for fighting <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of zombies. Um, I guess it's an important scene because we as the audience need to kind of understand what's going to happen next episode in the Battle of Winterfell. So their strategy is basically put all the women and children in the crypts um, with the dead people. And uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, and then they're going to put Bran in the Weirwood and they're going to attract the Night King. They're going to like assassinate the Night King Theon is going to be there protecting Bran so goodbye Theon I, it was nice knowing you I think you had your scenes leading up to your demise next week but I think Theon is definitely dying next week um, yeah and they're basically going to kill the Night King and hopefully his zombies will fall over so um, what did we think about the War Council scene and what do we do? Do we think their strategy was sound? Darren, this was huge. This scene was huge because this we finally get the answer to the question that people have been opining and theorizing and making predictions on since the beginning of the show, which is what do the um, 
what do the White Walkers want? And it might be a bit disappointing to find out what the answer is. Yes. Because, you know, yeah, and the answer, so I've written it down, so we've got it word for word, an endless night. He wants to erase this world, and I am its memory. See, this this is really weird for me, right? The fact that basically Bran is, so he wants, the Night King wants to erase the hard drive of, like, human like human activity in Westeros and Bran is a hard drive of human activity that's a really weird sort of thing like I don't really feel like this show has really been building up to this like I don't think thematically Mm. that this has really been something this show has hinted at no it doesn't doesn't feel it doesn't feel right like there's clearly something between the night king and the and blood and the three-eyed raven but it seems a lot more personal than three-eyed raven has insight into the history of mankind and we don't want any records being kept even though he technically should have the power to wipe out all of humankind i just don't under, it doesn't actually make it doesn't yeah make it's it really sense. weird it's a such a weird motivation and i don't know if this is a i don't know if this is a red herring anyway mm, you know, could be yeah the thing is i mean uh one it's perhaps convenient to, to 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 remember that some of the best villains think that they're the hero of their own story and so um, <laughs> if they do bad stuff, they do bad stuff for a reason, advancing a particular cause. And it, and we're told in this episode, hopefully that's not the full extent of the answer, but we're told in this episode that the Night King just wants an endless night, and that's it. I mean, how utterly pathetic a motivation for a villain is that? Compare that to, say, Thanos and the Avengers, who has a cause, namely... Um, ensuring that the resources of the universe aren't spent as a result of overpopulation. Now, it would be bizarre if that was the Night King's motivation, um, if, if the Night King had a motivation like that, but surely the Night King has a, has a bigger program in mind than simply an endless night. I mean, that, that is just so pathetically lame. And, uh, and how did Bran even if, know? If, if, if it really is. I mean, if it really is the answer, then um, I just think... Um, I just think it's probably a good thing that George R. R. Martin is suffering from a bad case of writer's block because I think everyone would have been up in arms, um, banging down his door, holding pitchforks and uh, and torches, if that was the full extent of the uh, the motivation of the Night King. It was utterly pathetic. Um, now the the other thing I should note about the, the, this couple of scenes is, Tormund now has become pure comic relief um and whilst he's very i always thought that you know in previous seasons particularly when john was beyond the wall that he was not just comic relief he was also a pretty scary dude um and he's just not that that anymore he's just uh he's just the he's just the weird scandinavian guy with with the slightly strange sense of humor and he's awesome um, (laughs) <laughs> but which not to say that he isn't awesome. He, he he is completely awesome and he's very very funny. Um, I, I just wish we saw. I, I just wish we saw um, more more from him. And there are hints of it later in the episode when he when he sort of questions why Brienne can't be a knight. But um, but he is he, the performance is becoming a bit sort of one note currently. And um, and you know this is in a show where there are a lot of characters who can play. 
a comic relief function, like, for instance, The Hound, whose one-liners, um, for sheer vulgarity, are absolutely hilarious. So, um, you know, I, I just I just found this um, this scene, um, the, this couple of these couple of scenes, weird, and um, and I hope they don't portend what's in store for the show. Mm. I also thought Tormund and his giant story was absolutely hilarious. I thought when he knocked John off as he went to hug the other dude from the Night's Voice, I thought that was really funny too. Like we need a bit of comic relief. Like you need you, you need a little bit of that. And I don't know. I think he's great in that role. I don't really need him to have more depth to him. There's plenty of other characters with depth, and I can uh, overlook Tormund not having a huge amount of it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think. He could get become quite a dire um, and 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 somber kind of theories, and you need you know characters like that to lighten it up and to bring a bit more of that um, humanity back to it. Yeah, yeah. Look, um, so to, so to to the point about um, the Night Kings. Do we think it's a red herring? Uh, look, I, I'll be I honest. I don't, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't either. I wish it were, but I think we're too late in the show. I'll tell you what disappoints me, though, because earlier in... I can't remember which season. It was last season or the season before. You see the creation of the Night King? You know, when the Mm -hmm. children of the forest plunge the, like, ice... uh, The dragon glass into the dude to make him into the Night King? And I thought that they were going to, like, maybe sort of go into his backstory and give him some sort of motivation and it was like well why would you show that scene if he's just going to be this 2D like 2D villain which who just wants like the end of the world right for no particular reason but look I, I, I my sense I agree with Anager I don't think they have enough time to really flesh out this guy's character his motivations this is not Avengers Infinity War. Avengers Infinity War basically spent the entire running time talking about Thanos, which is why you got a great villain story. I don't know if there's going. I watched. Um, I watched something. I think it. Was, I think it was something that came from people who made the show, the directors or something, and, and they were talking about the motivations of the Night King, and they were saying, "Look, it's just his instinct. It's his instinct is to kill, um, and it's not really any deeper than that." And so that fits with what Bran is saying now, and also I think that only half the season is going to be filled with the Night King battle. The rest, I imagine, is going to be Cersei and the, and the, pol- the internal politics of everyone who is left standing, I think. So, as you said, there's not really enough time for anything deeper, which is going to be the big disappointment of this series. Yeah. I mean, why even have the White Walkers if their motivations are going to be so completely and utterly superficial? They are... They, they, there is no... I mean, they would just be pure zombies and they would be no more sophisticated and no more purposeful than the whites that they create. I I just find that really frustrating. Why even complicate this story with what should be um, an extremely um, big adversary? I mean, humankind is facing an existential threat in the form of the White Walkers. And the White Walkers, we're, we're now being told you know, by dint of their killing instinct, are no more sophisticated than the than the xenomorphs in the Alien series. I, I just think that is really, really disappointing and unnecessarily complicates um, the story that the show is trying to tell. 
Um, I mean, if the main game was always going to be the political intrigue um, happening in and around King's Landing, uh, then the show should have been um, about that. And George R. R. Martin, I mean, you can sort of understand now, if, if this is really uh, the answer that we're going to be given, you can sort of understand how it is that this, this narrative has, has um, sort yeah. of slipped away from his control because probably, yeah. <laughs> there are these half-baked elements being mashed together. And, you know, he probably had some idea of what was going to happen when he first wrote this series of books, but it, it just seems to be the case that these narrative elements have, have slipped beyond his range of control and they are, they're, they're being mashed together in a really half-baked and unsatisfactory manner. Okay, we'll, we'll see how that resolves. So, I mean, immediately after this scene is the Bran Tyrion chat, in which we basically cut away the moment they start talking about anything interesting. So, do we have any sort of thoughts about that? Were you... <laughs> Curious. <laughs> it is Curious. I don't really know what Bran would possibly tell Tyrion. Like, See, I think Tyrion, narratively, we need Tyrion to make a really good, smart, excellent call. Because narratively, started off smart, making really dumb decisions, people are questioning his worth, we're giving him a second chance, he now needs to prove his worth. So I wonder if that is this is, conversation is going to pay off in, in that, that way somehow, but they wouldn't have just put it there like yeah. I didn't think they would have put it there without a reason yes I, I agree right it, it was like the way that scene cut away was too like too abrupt and too obvious for there not to have been some sort of real substance be- behind that conversation right although like I do find it to be a little bit of a on the nose storytelling technique where they just cut away like that and you're like oh we know that there's going to be something really important then later on you have like the Deus Ex Machina and it's like oh but it's not really a Deus Ex Machina because Bran told me an episode ago or whatever it was right so mm. yeah I am a little bit frustrated by that um yeah, look, I, I think you may be right that maybe this is how Tyrion gets his mojo back by getting a little <laughs> bit of foresight from the Three-Eyed Raven. Yeah. Um, mm. So the scene following this is uh, Missande and Grey Worm. Um, so this this scene in particular really made me feel like <laughs> this is like the final hurrah mm-hmm. of some of these characters. One of those guys is going to die, right? Like... Around this table, Grey Worm's right? gonna die. Yeah, I agree. Grey Worm's gonna they? die. Yeah, like he literally had the conversation with Missande, which is, "I'm about to retire in two days, and we're gonna mm-hmm. go sit on a beach in Nath somewhere, and we're gonna enjoy mm-hmm. the rest of our lives." Right? It's like mm-hmm. he's a cop two days away from retirement. Like what? <laughs> what? Why would they do that? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> do you think it's Grey Worm or do you think it's Missande? Because Missande is gonna be stuck in the crypt with all the zombies that are come gonna come out of the crypt true well. he's gonna be stuck in the crypt with those racist kids um, <laughs> maybe the racist just, kids will I, become zombies I, I'd, I'd be very happy to see the end of those racist kids I'd be quite happy to see the whites come along and tear them to pieces because oh, uh, Gerard, come on it's not their fault they've never seen anyone who looks like her before they're scared they're not hateful a, they're scared what a bunch of xenophobic little turds <laughs> Gerard. Um, okay, anyway, so 
I, it's either great, <laughs> goodbye Grey Worm or Missande. Look, here's my bet, right? Like, I think, I was saying to Bags, I think what's going to happen is that Grey Worm is going to die, and then at the end of this series, in the epilogue episode, Missande is going to be standing at the beach in Nath and, like, scattering yeah, ashes to, to the wind, right? I was like, ah, this is so That's what nose. I said to Gerald. <laughs> she's going to make it to Nath, but he's not. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. And he's just going to get there and, like... She'll be looking at his photo, or like, she'll be there with his ashes. You know, like, it's like a cop film, right? Where, at the end. So, anyway, it's it's going to be lame, but... Okay, so, following this is another big character scene, where um, Tyrion... Um, it starts off with Tyrion and Jamie having a drink, I think it is, and then they're subsequently joined by... Who comes in first? Is it Brienne and Pod? Brienne and yeah. Pod. Brienne yep. and Pod. Yeah. Yeah. Brienne and Pod come in, and then there's a great interaction between Pod and Tyrion, and Brienne and Jamie, and then Davos comes in, and then Tormund comes in, right? So they all kind of get in there, and it's kind of like the night be- before the big fight. Everyone is really nervous. No one knows if they're going to survive. Um, they just want some respite before this big battle, and they're all there. Um, all these people that we've met through seven seasons and have come to um, love and root for. Um, and basically, they have um, a chat, some great character moments, and it's, it culminates in the knighting of Sabrina of Tarth, which I thought was a really great scene where um, they realize that Brienne isn't a knight, and Jamie. Um, goes and knights her because um, as a knight he can you don't need the king to knight you as long as another knight knights you then that's enough so um, yeah what do we think about this scene I, I thought it was a great scene I thought it was um, it really captures this idea of the night the, the, the night before battle right and everybody is kind of on edge but everybody kind of wants to find some sort of companionship and reprieve before mm. this huge event that yeah. is going to come on and we know like I mean it's a scene that is written in such a way that we know that people are not going to survive from this group like some people are not going to survive from this group right so not only is this from it not only is this a great scene from an audience perspective but it feels really authentic from a character perspective as well yeah they don't want to let each other go like they keep saying come on one more drink one more drink let's let's stay together because they know that they might not be alive um, the next day. And human bonds and connections and closeness is what life is all about. And I think that scene with Jamie knighting Brienne was so beautiful. I teared up again. Like, all of the – like, there were so many amazing moments between Jamie and Brienne in this episode. And I think that this really balanced out um, the scene where Jamie said to Brienne that he all he wanted was to fight under her because if we didn't have that scene of him pretty much putting himself below Brienne and saying I want you know I want to fight for you I'm, I know I'm not a good fighter anymore but you know if you let me fight for you I know like him recognizing her value and her worth I think that was really important because in this scene we have Brienne kneel in front of Jamie and he is the one who is able to knight her he has the power he it's his validation and his acceptance that is being granted and so without the scene earlier of Jamie kind of acknowledging that she is you know for him she's the one on the pedestal Mm. um it would have felt funny so I think it was it was beautiful and really well done yeah I loved um 
Brienne of Tarth when she gets knighted, like she has this huge smile on her face afterwards, right? And I thought that was like a yeah, really, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's really yeah. well done. Yeah, Jerry Mags, what would you guys think of this scene? Oh, uh, well, I, I was gonna say, um, I totally agree with that. I absolutely loved the moment when Brienne was knighted, um, and also loved Torment standing up and clapping madly when he saw that happen as well with a big smile on his face too um i really liked the um the scene between Tyrion and jamie before the others joined them where they were having a kind of nostalgic moment remembering um their their past together growing up as siblings and mm. Tyrion sort of uh turns to jamie and, and says something like to the plight of self-betterment and they both you know clink their glasses and drink the wine um and i thought that was a really good way of sort of rounding off i guess the last conversation the last sense of intimacy between the two of them before they have to head off in their separate ways so it was kind of um i guess acknowledging that even though Tyrion was seen as a kind of outsider in the lannister household he and he and jamie always had a strong bond between one another and he accepted Jamie, knowing fully well that, you know, Jamie loved his sister and sleeping with his sister, um, but that he kind of understood him as well. Mm-hmm. So I actually thought it was quite humanising um, between the two of them as two, so... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I actually also thought that when Jamie knighted Brienne, like, the words that he says, like, the mm-hmm. way it's acted, like, I feel like... Nicolaj Costa Waldo, or whatever his name is, that uh, plays Jamie. He mm-hmm. did a really, I mean, Brienne of Tarth, um, um, she, that was a really, she did a great job there as well. But I feel with Jamie, like, you could feel like he meant those words as he knighted mm. them, right? Those words had weight and meaning. Like, this idea of Jamie the knight versus Jamie the like Cersei's the Lannister. Like, they, they feel like these two distinct entities, and Jamie the knight is kind of has kind of grown and taken over this Jamie Lannister persona over the course of these seven mm. seasons. So, yeah, I thought that was very satisfying. I, and I thought it was great, actually, just like seeing all these very likable characters because it was a room basically full of super likable characters, right? You had Tormund, Davos. You know, Davos is like, he's a pretty likable guy, right? He's like this sort of everyman that's caught in this um, bizarre conflict. Um, yeah, so I, I really, in a pod, like, I'm pod's, like, number one fanboy here, so I, I, <laughs> I, I thought, yeah, it was, like, a, a really great scene. I loved, actually, like, to the point of Tormund being this really super weird character, like, he tells that story of drinking the giant's milk, and no one even asked for it. Like, it's played in such a way that he basically comes in there and just volunteers this out of the blue, and everybody is sitting there going... What? <laughs> Why? Why? Why did you tell us that? Right? I thought it was like a really great character moment because it's like he is someone who's not really trained in the social niceties of, um, like civilized society. I guess right. So, like, for him to just volunteer this story because he thinks that it's going to impress Brienne of Tarth is <laughs> like I think it's like a really great character moment. Um, yeah. Well, I think he was also he was also engaged in a bit of a dick measuring contest with Jamie, um, because uh, 
when he when he, when he comes in, he, he pretty quickly clues into the fact that Jamie and Brianna have a bit of history and have a connection. And so, um, the, the, throughout throughout the course of the scene, he does say uh, he does do and say things to to niggle Jamie a bit. You know, at one point he says he says to Jamie, "Well, some people call you the King Killer," um, as if as if to um, remind everyone in the room that the reformed and sensitive uh, Jamie Lannister that they see before them is actually still uh, the same man who, who killed the Mad King. Um, I, I, like everyone, I thought this was a, this scene was the heart of the episode. Um, and in many ways, it, it felt like it almost felt like a scene that you'd see in a play uh, because you've all these characters entering stage left and joining um, the group. It was in a small way uh, reminiscent of some some Tarantino scenes even you know the, the way the the characters sort of come into a room and interact with each other like say the hateful eight um, and and you see all the various different bonds that have been built between different pairings and different sets of characters um, amongst the amongst the group gathered in in the room so I thought it was probably the most effective and affecting um, scene in the uh, entire episode, and we might be—I might be skipping that forward a bit—but you know, when it's sort of capped off with uh, that brilliant vocal performance by uh, Podrick Payne, um, the um, that sense of you know we've all gathered for one last one last time on the eve of quite possibly um, our doom uh, weighs heavy upon the entire episode. And it's it's telling that when Podrick sings that song, the show cuts to a montage of all the various different people in the uh, in the scene, in, in Winterfell, because I suppose the idea is, you know, when, when, when uh, Tyrion says, let's have a song and Pod obliges, you know, he is... Tyrion is trying to prolong the interaction between the characters of the scene, trying to um, extract as much as possible from the bonds that have been built up between these characters. And then that song then becomes a way to, to connect all the different elements of the story being told in Winterfell. So um, it's very, it was very effective. Mm, agreed, agreed. I thought, yep, I totally agree that that was the heart of this episode. Um, yeah, it was... It's going to be sad to see next week that some of these guys are going to disappear from the show, but I guess this show is ending soon, so, yeah. Um, okay, so moving on from that scene, we have a couple of Arya scenes, um, one of which I oh thought God. landed, and one of which I felt was super weird and uncomfortable. Oh, oh <laughs> uh, my God, so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, oh. I was really uncomfortable about the, the Hound and Aya. I just thought that was so... That was, <laughs> I was just not feeling that. Um, so, yes, Gerald, like, the first part of this scene is Arya um, encountering the Hound. They have a very brief but effective conversation, I guess, and Beric Dondarrion yeah. rocks up as well. Um I think they're like the last of the Brotherhood without banners, it seems, anyway. Um, I, I, I thought this scene with the Hound was great. It contrasts so much with the previous scene where you have all these other people who are seeking the companionship of others. Because, I mean, during the montage you also see Sansa and Theon, like, seeking each other's companionship as well. Um, 
and the hound instead is just sitting on the battlements by himself being the hound I guess <laughs> um, Arya comes to join him they have like a very brief chat which is meaningful and Beric is there as well but then immediately after this scene Arya goes around to Gendry and basically this is like a super uncomfortable sex scene because Arya wants to get it on before her, she doesn't know if she's going to survive she wants to get it on she's chosen Gendry and they kind of get it on it I don't know I guess Arya Gendry shippers are really happy that this happened for me this was a super weird uncomfortable scene it didn't really feel particularly organic at all um yeah what were your, your thoughts on it? <laughs> there are thoughts on Gendry because twice now he's been involved in quite uncomfortable sex scenes in the show and twice like the, the women don't actually want him for him and who he is um you know Melisandre wants the the, the blood from his dick and um Aya just wants to know what it feels like to have sex and uh, and so you know, spare spare for this bloke. You know, the, no no one in the universe wants Gendry for Gendry. Um, hopefully, hopefully, you know, uh, after this, should that should the two of them survive, um, the, uh, the 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 boundary relationship might flower into something a bit more organic and uh, and less weird. But as it is, I think part of the part of the weirdness of this scene is no doubt informed by the fact that uh, when the show started Maisie Williams looked about what 11 and to have this particular this particular uh, this particular scene um, just seemed just played very very uh, very awkwardly I'm sure in living rooms uh, all over the world Um, I mean the the truth with Maisie Williams is that we saw her when she was a kid, but as she's grown up, she's returned. Like I know that she's oh, yeah. older than eighteen, but she still looks like it's not like S- Sansa has grown to be like this seven foot giant, right? So she and, looked- and, and, like. And here's the thing: like Maisie Williams is only a year younger than Sophie Turner, exactly. So- but she looks so much younger than so she looks really, really young as well, which is also what makes this a super uncomfortable scene. But anyway. Yeah. So the Hound uh, is my favorite, one of my one of my favorite characters, and I thought him saying to Arya, um, "I fought for you, didn't I?" was one of the most like you don't get the Hound being more tender than that. Like that's that's the max, that's maximum Hound tenderness, and it was really lovely to see it. Also, you know, he's on his own because he's a loner. It might be the end of the world, but he's alone until till the end. But he wants Arya's company. When she sits down, he says, you know, why aren't you talking? You normally chatter on. Like, he wants her to speak. And when she walks away to go away, he says, where are you going? Whereas, you know, Beric Dondarrion turns up and he's like, what is this, a bloody wedding? Like, he's yeah. like he, he doesn't want the reunion with Beric. Um, so, yeah, love the hound scene. So, so... Ah, Arya and Gendry. It was really uncomfortable. I don't want to say it's uncomfortable because she looks young or because we saw her as a child initially because 
if she isn't young and she has grown up, I think it was uncomfortable because we haven't shown her develop a sexual connection or desire for anybody. We don't see any of that and suddenly we're just thrown into it. And I just think it actually went against, it's not that it went against her character, but we, we, it, it wasn't really part of her character either. Yes, she's adventurous and she's daring, but we haven't seen that side of her at all. And it was so uncomfortable. I do think that she didn't just want Gendry to I don't think she was using him for sex I think that she loves loves Gendry um when Gendry and her last parted ways she wanted Gendry to come with him to Winterfell and Gendry said I want to stay with the brothers because they're a family and she said to him I could be your family so I, I I think she loves him and that this is just her way of getting that connection because she doesn't have it in her to show the vulnerability to say that I have feelings for you um but it was just so awkward I couldn't handle it I was just squealing with awkwardness the whole time Mags did you love this relationship scene or did you also find it super awkward (laughs) Um, well I guess as I said before I I felt like it was really forced and it felt it felt like fan fiction come to life Um, like uh, you know for me I haven't read the book so I, I you know the only I guess reference point that I have for her and her relationship with Gendry is through the series and for me it didn't feel developed enough to be a romantic or sexual relationship and you know the last few seasons she's been focused on becoming this kind of badass assassin so that's sort of my persona of who my sense of her persona so her kind of and like I can understand the night before you know a big battle um it forces you know each character to think about and to act in a way um, to find to find a human connection um, with people who they care about. So hypothetically, I can kind of understand why the show creators headed down this path, um, but at the same time, it just seemed quite um, artificial to me. Um, the scene on the parapet with the hound and um, What's his name? I really liked um, because I guess the the relationship between Arya and the Hound has and the Hound himself has always been of very few words. So I I kind of liked it, um, and I liked how it ended with just the two of them, the last remaining members of um, the Brotherhood, um, sitting together. And you know, is this going to be um, that? final scene where we see them alive are they going to die next episode or episode after who knows maybe they will um, I don't, and think, I, don't th- th- I don't think the hound will the hound because has... you're seeing Clegane Bowl still happening Clegane Bowl. Right? yeah, yeah, Cle- yeah, yeah. Bowl. so yeah. Beric definitely 19 yeah. lives and that's it <laughs> yeah yeah I think he's done yeah. I, th- I think yeah. Beric's done yeah. yeah yeah so it'll just be the hound then left standing out yeah, of the brother and then he'll fight the mountain in Clegane Mole in King's Landing. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, both of those men have a purpose, right? That's been established. The reason that um, the reason that that Beric is brought back to life is that he has a purpose. And similarly with the Hound, like he should have died. The reason he's still alive is that, and he can see, you know, into the flames as well. Is that he too has a purpose? So um, they're not just going to die in battle. They're going to be doing something. Mm. Both of them. Yeah, well, yes, Clegane Bowl. That's what he, that's what he's yeah. in the fire for sure. <laughs> Give the fans what they want. 
Um, okay, so following on from this scene, we had second last scene is um, Jorah and Liana Mormont. Um, that was a great. Ch- having a chat about awesome. the crypts. Yep, great scene, and even better, Sam giving Jorah Heart Spain. I want to say is the name of the sword. Is that right, Joey? Yeah, yes. Heartsbane. Yeah, Heartsbane. Yeah. So basically, Liana is telling Jorah, "I'm not going to hide," and then she walks off with her posse of dudes, looking like a total badass like, mafia leader type. <laughs> um, and, so good. And um, then Sam has a very emotional scene with Jorah, where he gives him Heartsbane, um, which is great because it kind of mirrors this scene where Jorah's dad gave. Um, Jon Snow the Longclaw I want to say is the name of that sword and I think that's right yeah um, yeah what do what you guys think uh, the Jorah scene didn't really land like the Jorah Sam scene did not land at all for me um, but I did love Lady Liana telling Jorah how things are going to be I thought that was fantastic <laughs> Well, she knows that the dead are rising, so why are you locking me in the crypt, buddy? Yeah, exactly. For me, I think it was... Oh, sorry. No, no, Mags, go. Um, I was just thinking, Jorah um, is one of those wild cards where, you know, people are trying to work out who's the prince that was promised, and there were some... No way, it's not ...random theories. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. ...random theories about Jorah, and he's the only one of the um, sort of main warriors who didn't have um, a dragon glass or a Valyrian steel weapon. So within, for me, it was more, okay, how do we get him a weapon to still keep the theory alive? And so that was Sam giving him his father's Valyrian steel sword because it was too heavy for Sam to wield. Yeah. That was the only thing that I was thinking. What if, look, Does what... Azor High have to have a Valyrian steel sword? No, he's he's but he bathes the sword in the blood of his beloved. Oh, Lisa, Lisa. yeah. Which which could be Daenerys. Well, I mean, yeah. like like John could bathe it in Daenerys's blood, or also uh, yes. or Jorah could bathe it in Daenerys's blood as well. Um, similarly, Jamie could bathe it in Cersei's blood. Yeah, like Jamie could bury his Valyrian steel sword in Cersei's blood. What if Brienne is Azorai, and Brienne has to kill Jamie? Ooh. Anyway, who knows, right? All these people have Valyrian. <laughs> who has Valyrian steel swords now? Jamie, Brienne, John, and um, Jorah. Not everyone. Um, uh, yeah. Arya doesn't. Arya doesn't have a sword. Yeah, she has. She's got a she's dagger. Got a she's dagger. got a dagger. Got and the then dagger. She, and then the spear thing that she got made. <laughs> Custom made. Um, who else Guys, is... Guys, I think you're all forgetting the possibility that Grey Worm might have to plunge his sword into Masambo's huh? <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's true. Also true. Also true. <laughs> Grey Worm needs someone to get him and... a Valyrian steel sword to be a contender, though. That's right. And... <laughs> And the show could then end with Grey Worm on the beaches of Yar. <laughs> That's right. Pondering, looking at, looking with a photo of Misate. Pondering what could have been. Yeah. What could have been with Misate. Yeah, we were two days from retirement. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 the thing is, and the thing is, because, because uh, there is a cyclical, there's an element of cyc- cyclicality about the universe, we find that uh, Misande is... is uh, 
is uh, is reborn and reincarnated as the hick, as the hacker in um, Fast and Furious Seven. Um. Okay. Should we move on from this scene, or is there anything else? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So in my notes, the last scene is um, Danny and John in the crypts. Um, ah. So. John is standing, is in the crypts. Danny is going to, is trying to search for him because clearly she's finding it a bit weird that her man is not, has suddenly become quite distant and quite cold. John is standing in front of a statue of, um, what is, what's the Starks? Liana Stark. Liana Stark, that's right, that's right, Ned's sister. And John basically reveals that um, his best mate and his brother told him that he was like a Targaryen and Danny. And it sounds so ridiculous. Yeah. And when Danny's like, how do you know? And he's like, oh, Bran told me. And uh, Sam confirmed it. And she's like, uh, so your best mate and your brother said that you're the right boy. Yeah. That <laughs> yeah, was, I'm really like, <laughs> that's super dumb. So this was a really weird scene for me because one, I didn't understand why John would choose to reveal this before this huge battle, right? You kind of mm. feel like it's going to be like a morale killer, right? And secondly, there's no, like, what is the point of him revealing this? Like, like, why? Why is he telling him her? Sorry, why is he telling her this? Like, he's got no ask. Do you know what I mean? It's not like he's got a specific purpose for doing it. It's just like... Well, the longer he hides it from her the more it's going to be, well, why didn't you tell me? Like, like, like the deceit isn't going to work in his favour either. He does have to tell her ASAP, I think. Otherwise, it's deceit. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's Jon Snow. He's honourable, right? Mm. Yeah. He's got to tell her. Uh, Or else he's going to just keep having awkward conversations where he looks to one side and refuses to address Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I do find it hilarious that basically when he tells her this... Her first reaction is not, holy shit, I've been sleeping with my nephew. Her of first course reaction. Not, guys. You guys are all getting distracted by that when it's completely irrelevant in this universe because, because that's what Targaryens did. It's as, it's as normal as anything for, for, for Targaryens. Come on. She's like, wow, that's even better. <laughs> Um, it was always going to be, the problem was always going to be his claim to the throne. Yeah, so, I mean, immediately, like, she did, her only response is basically, well, so what are you saying? Are you saying you have a better claim to the throne than me, basically? And look, to be fair, like, her reaction is pretty justified as well, because this idea that, like, the only evidence you have is your your brother and, his, and your yeah. best mate... Is like legit. Like, what yeah. the hell? Like, if you see this written in a history book, you'd be like, "This is just made up." He's just making mm. up. Do you know what I mean? Like, you you, yeah. you read ancient history all the time, and they have these fantastical stories. And the reaction of historians is, "No, this is just a made-up story to justify a political lineage, uh, like a uh, to justify a lineage, basically, right?" And it's just politically motivated, and there's no other. And it absolutely sounds like that. So. Um, it actually sounds. It actually. It actually sounds like the worst reason for dumping a girl, like any man has ever said. Like imagine, <laughs> imagine watching a, imagine watching a, a romantic comedy in which the man says to the woman, "Look, it's not you, but it's not even me. 
what it is is my friend said to me that you're my aunt and that's why we can't get out anymore. I mean, and so you can sort of understand her reaction. But, being but it's not even people. about the dumping, though. It, Adam's right. It's not actually about the dumping They're not at dumping all. each other. I'm not saying it's a dumping. I'm saying but on one level, the scene actually kind of plays like a really bad dumping, um, like a really lame dumping. Um, but, it's not, but, it, but the scene, it, objectively speaking... It's not. It's, it, no one. No one's. No one's getting dumped. I mean, no one's. No but one's Daddy getting knocked angry. away. Let's, no talk, one's let's, dumped. let's talk about what is there. She's angry. Danny's reaction is anger. Yes, and because her for her entire life, as she told us early in the episode, sure, um, she's been. You know, her. Her. She's been. She at least has been um, reared and raised to believe that the Iron Throne, if not, if not, well, if not, if not the property of her brother is certainly hers. And so she, she has gone sort of seven and a half, well, six and a half seasons now thinking that she was the sole Targaryen claimant to the Iron Throne. And to have this um, obstacle pop up at the last minute is discombobulating and would completely throw out her sense of, you know her place in the world. So, but it's not just discombobulate. Like she's not just. It's not like the ground has just been pulled away from her, and she's confused, and she doesn't know what to think. She's angry, which suggests that she feels this is unjust. Like she feels the injustice of it, which I think tells us how important it is to her that she has that claim to the throne. Like it's not just that I was born thinking I had this, and therefore I'm working towards it. It's you know, she she personally values it. It's part of her identity. It's what she she wants it. It's not just that it's hers and she will fight to get, you know, to restore the balance or to take back what was taken from her. It's, it's something that she wants and she's angry that maybe it was never hers to begin with. Well, mm. but is she, an- well is she angry? No. So, sorry, um, Max, do you no, want to go no, you first? No, you go. No, no, you go. You go. Well, I mean, is she angry because, um, like, this is like she feels like it's being taken away from her or do you feel she's angry because she thinks that his like this is some BS that the Starks have just made up all of a sudden like I could understand that in her position she'd be like what the F like what Mm. are you talking about like I mean this whole idea of wait you're the secret like love child of my brother and this other lady and they were actually married as well I could fully understand why she would be angry because she's been in this sort of like bend the knee discussion with two Starks now, Sansa and Jon, like mm-hmm. two seasons, right? And finally, it seems like she's got them to commit to bend the knee and as a result she's committed her forces. And then on the eve of this battle, this guy's turning around and going hang on, but I think I've actually got a more legitimate claim to the throne. So on some level I can Look, I, I agree that Danny absolutely feels entitled to the throne, and I feel like that is the worst part of her character. But mm. at the same time, if, if I'm, I'm, if I put us, myself in her shoes in that exact situation, I would be like crazy mad as well. Like, what are you talking about? Like, wh- why are we having this discussion right now, the eve before battle, and why are you making this crap up, right? Because it totally sounds—I mean, as we said, totally sounds made up. And if 
you thought that someone was making this stuff this stuff up at the 11th hour, you would get super mad as well, right? You would feel like someone's kind of yeah. going back on their work. But I don't, yeah. I don't think she does think he's making it up. No, she, I don't think she. I don't think she does. I don't think she thinks he's he's making it up. She she might she might think, and even then, I'm not entirely I'm not convinced of this. But she might think that he's being led astray by uh, Bran and Sam. But I don't think he. I don't think she thinks he's he's making it up. Also, bear in mind that um, not only not only has this news um, uh, introduced a new impediment, an obstacle to her claim to the throne. It's also um, sort of thrown the story of how the Targaryen dynasty was bumped out of King's Landing completely out of whack in her mind, because bear in mind the uh, the it was Robert's Rebellion that forced the Targaryens out, and Robert's Rebellion, Robert's Rebellion was, we are told, um, instigated because Rhaegar had kidnapped Lyanna. And to know now that that might have been a lie, that the entire, that, the, that your family was dispossessed of what was its Natural birthright because of a lie um, would be would would it would would be one further would be one further shock to the entire belief system that sits at the core of Danny's identity. She hasn't made that leap yet, though. Like she hasn't said anything about that. What she does say is, "Well, then you have a claim to the throne," and she's angry about it. And that's why I think it's all about that at the moment. Hopefully, once she processes. <laughs> it won't just be all about that. But right now, that's I think that's what she's angry at. And I agree with Darren that that is the worst part of her character. Mm. Mags, sorry sorry about that earlier, that interruption. Um, what, what no, 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 no. I was just going to say, I think it was in um, last season when she first meets John, and she's trying to... Um, she's sort of fiercely defending um, why she thinks that she has this birthright to the Iron Throne, and she was talking about, you know, what has been driving her through all the traumatic experiences and the um, sort of suffering and then her time in Essos and so forth, what has been driving her. And it's this sense of self-belief in herself and in her place as the Queen of um, the Seven Kingdoms. So, I mean, if that's, you know, her identity and her sense of self is totally built around that, then... Obviously, she's going to react in a way where um, she's going to react in a bad way to that and in a quite a defensive way as well. Um, because it, it goes right to the core of her identity mm, and her sense of self. Agreed. Can, can I raise a point? This point is related. Um, the episode begins with a flashback, um, and the flashback they've chosen for this episode is basically Varys saying, what if for just once the realm was ruled by a just man and a you know a, a good woman uh, why has no why has nobody just said oh well okay it's weird maybe you have a better claim maybe i have a better claim maybe they're making up maybe they're not let's but we're in love um it makes sense for us to get married even without this claim because you're the warden of the north and the north is the least is the most tenuous you know place for me to hold because it's so far away and, and they are so fiercely independent yeah, let's get married anyway, and then it's all moot. Like, what, what, what? Because that would require the two of them to be, that would require the two of them, John and Daenerys, to be better politicians than they have been on the show so far. Um, a, and maybe, maybe, and maybe they'll point? get, 
maybe they'll get to that point. But, you know, bearing in mind, we're talking about the immediate reaction to this news. Um, and if and if this is a major disruption to her sense of self, which I think we, we all have to accept it is, then it would be, I think, expecting a bit much of Daenerys to say, well, why aren't you being more cold and calculating and rationally uh, assessing the next political move, which is simply to get married, so that uh, these issues become, uh, 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 so that the Gordian knot is is cut. Uh, but they're in love they anyway. Like it should they have may, been they may eventually they may eventually get to that point, but uh, to to expect them to get to that point in this scene, I don't think is. Um, Do you think they'll still be in love after this revelation? Yes. So you know how Varys says it like it's nothing fighting, lasts. Nothing lasts, right? Do you think they'll still be in love after this revelation? Mm. I, yes. I, I'm not. I'm not one hundred percent sure of that. But um, I think I think that this is this will be a moment of this will strain the relationship. Um, but John will die in the next episode. And Daniel Dad's not gonna die. Okay, okay. Let, let, let's 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 cut to the let's cut to the meat of our discussion oh, tonight, then, because the White Walkers are coming. Who do you think is gonna die? Who do you think is gonna survive? Jerry, go. You've already said that John's gonna die. Who who else do you think? Yeah, John's gonna die, and I think I think we're gonna see Melisandre bring him back one more time. Because really, oh uh, wow, okay. She has to come back to Westeros for a reason, and I think she has to come back for that reason. Um. Yes, Grey Worm is not long for this world. Neither is Barak Dundarian. Um, <laughs> I would say... You know what? It's really hard to say that there... It's, it's really hard after, after, after you get to that point to say that there are too many top-tier characters who are going to die. I only say that because in, last, in the last season with the... Um, when, in Beyond the Wall... Um, Everyone was expecting some major deaths, and there were none, except for perhaps if you, you can count Thoris of Mier as a major death, but not really. So um, it's going to be hard to see um, who else goes. I think Theon is gone. Yes, um, Theon. Theon's done, right? Like the moment he volunteered to protect the Godswood. See you later, right? Like he's done. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I mean I'll, yeah, yeah. This is this is the last we'll see of Alfie Allen in uh, in uh, in in the Game of Thrones universe, and hopefully he'll find he'll find a way for his character to be reincarnated in the John Wick franchise because um, we're, we're done with it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's hard to see which which other of the top tier characters is is gone. Jamie has to live in order to kill Cersei. Perhaps Tyrion might go. That would um, be that would be a big deal if Tyrion went in the crypts. That would be a big deal. Do we think anyone's going to? Do you think Sam's going to survive? I don't think Sam's going to survive. That hurts me because I love Sam. Sam is Sam is going to survive. You reckon? Sam is going to survive. I, yeah. I don't know about Sedalos. I think. Uh, what, what makes you think Sam's going to survive? Sam is the writer of the story. Is he though? No, it's yeah. not gonna. It's not gonna end like the Hobbit with him I sitting there so. writing the story. Is it? No. <laughs> think about it. Think about it. Think about the sort of physical resemblance between Sam and George R. R. Martin. I think. I think there's a case to be made. There's a case to be made that Sam. Is he is George R. R. Martin. He is. George R. R. Martin has said that Sam is him in the books. 
Really? But, yeah, he well, said that. He said that Sam huh. is like his persona in the books. Yeah. Okay. He's the writer of the story. Yeah, but, but it doesn't listen, mean think, he's going to survive. Brad, I think Brad might die. I think Brad might die, but Sam is not going to die. But if Brad dies, doesn't it just end, like, in the world or whatever? No, it doesn't. It just means there's no one left now who can see into the past and the future. Hmm. Oh, now, can I just touch on that? I know we're at, like, an hour and a half, which is ridiculous. Um, oh, can Brad, I just say Gendry? Oh, Gendry's going to die? Gendry's yeah. going to die. Yeah, yeah go yeah. next. Oh, no, I was just going to say, so just a clarification. Can Bran see into the future or can he only see into the past and the present? Because he says the point at the War Council, you know, when someone asks him about the dragon fire and he said, no one's done that before. I don't know. Mm. They've definitely taken a back step. I'm pretty sure at some point earlier there was reference made to Bran being able to see into the future, but now they've definitely gone back from that because he said things like, I don't know if we're all going to survive. I don't know if dragons can do this or that. So, yeah. But future Bran can look into the past, right? Yes. Think about that. <laughs> Think about that. <laughs> So yeah, Bran, and if... Bran can whisper. And future Bran can whisper to past people because he whispered to past Ned. So while current Bran might not know the future, future Bran can connect with past Bran. The past, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Mm. Bran's powers are so weird, and like... I think whenever you put time travel into your story, you're going to screw yourself over because it's not going to yeah. make sense. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So... Who else is going to survive? Jamie's going to survive. Brienne might die. I think Brienne. Um, mm, I yeah, think everyone Brienne in that room die. except Jamie and Tyrion are going to are going to die. I think both John and Danny will survive because I cannot handle it if John dies. I'm just not going to be okay with it. I think Melisandre is Nisa Nisa. It's not my theory. It's someone else's theory, and I think they make a very compelling point that she she will die with the sword plunged into her chest or whatever. Um, I don't think she'll bring John back to she, life again. She's no one's beloved. No one. No one loves her. Well, Nisa Nisa doesn't have to be a beloved just because she was in the last reiteration. But the prophecy says that it's the beloved. I think, isn't there a prophecy or something? Does the prophecy say it's a beloved? I don't know. Yeah, I I think so. Anyway. Mm. Okay, okay. Maybe she takes on the form of a beloved. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Can can I just ask, where is Melisandre right now? She's just kind of gone east. She'll be back. <laughs> what? <laughs> we don't need to know her exact where. So, why did she even leave then? If she's got to be back, John then. banished her. John banished she's... her. <laughs> yeah, John banished her. Uh, and she, she did say that I think at Dragonstone. She said to Varys. Yes, he has to die in Westeros. Yeah. But she is coming back to die in Westeros. Yeah. So yeah. basically, she's just been hanging out in the village across from Winterfell, waiting to make her grand appearance. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just spending time with Guy Pearce, you know, sort of like, just chilling. Um, yeah, I, I think pretty much everyone is going to die except the characters that need to move forward. So I think Pod's got done. I think Tormund's done. I genuinely, I think that Brienne is done, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Me um, too. I think... Um, Beric is definitely done. Um, Theon's done. It, what will be interesting is whether Bran, Bran is done or not. 
Um, I think Arya... Do you think Arya's done? Because No, I if, don't think Arya's done. Because if Jaime no, is going to kill Cersei... Not Arya, but... But I think definitely Gendry. Just just, just to make that, that love scene point Do you think Sansa yet. is done? No. No? no. Gilly? Oh, that's a difficult one. Because don't forget, the White Walkers want Gilly's baby. The, the mm-hmm. Gilly's baby was the last of the babies that was promised and wasn't delivered. Yeah. And she's in the crypt, which is the most dangerous place to be. Yeah. Well, I think Gilly might be done. Yeah. So if Gilly's done, I actually think that Sam might be done as well. Oh, I don't think yeah. Sam's done. Someone's yeah. got to be devastated about Gilly, and so da- Sam will be alive. Yeah. <laughs> to be devastated. <laughs> <laughs> is Davos in, in the death crypt? Or is Sam Zab- has to survive to, to mourn Gilly and then develop a bad case of writer's block. So um, he'll be all right, I think. Wait, is Davos in the Death Crypt or is he on the battlements? I in think safety? He'll be is he safely fighting zombies outside or is he in the Death Crypt? <laughs> I think he's outside. Yeah, I think Davos might be done as well. Yeah. I don't even, like, I, I kind of feel that even, like, some of these supporting characters, like Varys, because Varys, I feel like they're going to cut all of the fat. So any of the characters that kind of have become sideshow characters... Yeah, that's, really, that's really rude about Varys and his, uh, and his physiognomy, Darren. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh, cutting the fat. <laughs> oh. Yeah. No, no, but you know Varys has kind of become a sideshow character, right? So I don't mm. know if they might kill him off as well. But anyway... I enjoyed this episode. I thought it was like some really good character interactions, um, farewells to some um, loved characters, um, and I hated how it ended because um, I got to wait till next Varys, week. Varys is clearly not going to die, right? He's not going to die in battle. He's going to die because he betrays Daenerys and she's going to kill him. That was set up a long time ago. So, but yeah, let's see. Let's see what happens. Next week's going to be amazing. Yeah, exactly. The fight in the crypts. Can't wait to see who gets out on top of that one. Um, yeah, and I guess awesome. the Night King fighting Bran, like the Night King on a dragon fighting a guy in a wheelchair. Let's see how that one fight goes question. down. <laughs> one last question. Why does Arya look so terrified? Is it because Ned and her family come back from the dead? As whites. What, what do you mean Arya looks so terrified? In, you know, in all the those scenes of Arya trailers. running through the crypts, looking absolutely mm. terrified. In the trailers, it, Darren. Oh. Never yeah, it must be. Well, like, well who's, who's dead in the crypts? It's the old Starks, right? Yeah. So all the old Starks. Ned. Yeah, so, well, Ned doesn't even yeah, have a Ned, head. How, how does Ned oh, no, fight? I thought, I thought, I thought <laughs> Ned, Ned's bones were boiled and... Uh, and his head was left on the pike uh, at King's Landing to rot into nothingness. So no, no, Gerald, Ned Littlefinger little finger delivers Ned's body to Catelyn to bury in the crypt. But surely his body would be a skeleton by now. Like, True. Yeah, but a lot of the whites are skeletons. Yeah. No, but they don't, like... don't forget, there was a specific scene where Littlefinger comes to see Catelyn in the battle and she brings a che- he brings a chest with Ned's body in it. And I'm like, well, maybe that's setting this up. Yeah. Know. Maybe there'll be a cameo from Undead Sean Bean. Maybe. This week. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Okay, all, all we right. know is the crypts are not a good place to be in. Horrible decision. 
Um, okay, well, we'll be back uh, Thursday to talk yes. about Avengers Endgame. I'm super stoked about that. I rewatched Infinity War. Great film. And, so good. Yes, and we're going to be talking about Endgame. Um, and then the following Monday, we're going to be talking about the Battle of Winterfell, hopefully. So, Yay! Yeah. So thank you so much, everybody, for joining me tonight. It was an hour and a half. We tried to keep it short, but we were not particularly successful, but we will endeavor to try again next week. Um, thanks so much, everybody, for joining me. Say bye. Bye. See you. Yeah.